I had the opportunity to go back last week to my very first church that I pastored. It was located in East LA. Anybody here familiar with East LA? It's, yeah, yeah, oh, okay, East LA. There's something about walking through the hallways of a familiar, old familiar place that just feels, it brings up the nostalgia in you. Like, have you ever gone back to your old high school or elementary after you've been away to college before? Or, or maybe driven through a neighborhood that you used to live in and you pass by, oh yeah, that's the house I live. Oh, I played in that park. You know, it, it has a sense of coming home. But the experience wasn't totally positive because there were a lot of people missing. People that I, I cared for, that I invested in as a youth pastor. Some of them had moved away, but others had moved on from their faith in God, had disconnected from the church. That was hard. I mean, these are kids that I poured my life into. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Good evening, people of God. Good evening. Uh, it is my privilege and pleasure to be with you tonight. Um, I just want to say that was so beautiful. Thank you so much, Gwen, for your testimony, for sharing a piece of your story with us. Can we say thank you to her again? That's powerful. I, honestly, I don't know if I need to continue with the message tonight. That was, that was awesome. I love that. Conversations with, or questions with Kelly? Is that how it goes? Questions with Kelly great new segment. Uh, my name is Joey. I'm a pastor here at the church. Um, and one of the ministries I'm involved in is Rooted, Rooted Sabbath School. Any of you heard about Rooted before? Yes. Yes, a few of you, a few of you. Okay. <laughs> Rooted is, uh, is a community of 30s and 40s where we, we, if we follow God, we, we, we create a context where people can meet God, grow together in community. And so if you are all ever interested, we meet together for Sabbath School at 1015 upstairs in the same building. So come drop by, say hi. I see Kirsten right there. She's going to kill me for pointing her out, but she, <laughs> she also joins us in that community as well. So yes. Um, so that's my little commercial for this, for this evening. I know when, when an unfamiliar speaker comes and starts to share with you, there's always a little bit of awkwardness. You're kind of wondering, is it going to be boring? Is it going to kind of go long? So I want to rest you. I'm going to rest your heart, give you some peace tonight. Pastor Philip told me specifically what to do tonight. Um, he told me that he never goes longer than one hour, one and a half hours. So that's what you're expecting. No, that's not what you're expecting tonight. No. Well, the good news is, the good news is my talk has nothing to do with how to Netflix and chill. So, so uh, is that too soon? Was that too soon to, to make that joke? We can do that because Philip's not here. <laughs> So when I, um, they, you know, they always say there's two types of people that are blessed by messages. There's the type that are, that arise 
because they're rejuvenated by the word, and then there's the type of people who arise because they're rejuvenated by the nap. And I hope there's more of the former than the latter, but either way, I hope you're blessed tonight. So we're in this series called Church Faith Still Matters. It's about the spiritual practices that help grow us into resilient disciples, grow a resilient faith within us. And I love that. But I thought tonight we'd start by talking about what resilience is. There's an author by the name of Andrew Zoli, and uh, he has a book called Resilience, Why Things Bounce Back. And he contrasts resilience with robustness, resilience with robustness to show what resilience is. And his example of robustness is a pyramid, like the Egyptian pyramids. Anybody ever see the Egyptian pyramids in person? Anybody? Oh, there's a few of you. Okay. A few hands up. That's, so, that's cool. Look, so when you go there, I mean, the pictures don't really do them justice. I, I had the privilege of going there about a month ago. And when you get there, they're just massive, right? They're just massive. And the size of each individual block is just huge. And as I was pushing on them, I, I, I thought to myself, these, these blocks can withstand anything, anything. And to a certain degree, they have. They've withstood all the stressors that their architects designed them to withstand. Rain, wind, sandstorms. And so they're a really good example of what it means to be robust, right? Because they can withstand whatever they were designed to withstand. However, if there's a stressor that comes that they're not designed to withstand, then they fall apart. For example, if, if someone drops a bomb on these beautiful pyramids and they blow up, they have no way of coming back, right? Now contrast that with coral. Coral compared to, to the pyramids are pretty fragile. I mean, if you step on coral, they'll break, right? So that's why they tell, it, tell you when you're snorkeling or scuba diving, don't step on the coral because they're pretty fragile. And that's why, you know, every year when the hurricanes um, blow through, tropical storms blow through, a, a bunch of coral gets broken down, broken apart, and it dies. However, if there remains a healthy core, the coral is able to regenerate and regrow. So while it's not robust, it is resilient. And we as Christians, our faith is supposed to resemble more the coral than the pyramids. See, our faith is not meant to be like this stoic faith that withstands anything that life throws our way without being moved. It's not the reality. When life's circumstances come, they sometimes break us down. They break us apart. We're littered with questions and doubt. But resilient faith means that it is able to regrow and regenerate and become resilient. And if ever there were a time that we needed resilient faith, it's today. You know, I, I had the opportunity to go back last week to my very first church that I pastored. It was located in East LA. Anybody here familiar with East LA? It's, yeah, yeah, oh, okay, East LA. So it's located right across from the White Memorial Hospital. And if you're familiar with that area, you know that it's not the most inviting place. You know, uh, we, when 
When I was a youth pastor there, we would have gang violence. There'd be shootings. One time, one time, one of my police contacts called me, and he told us after a church activity, don't go back to the church. Wait in the subway parking lot because there's a shooter somewhere in your parking lot. We need to track him down. Not the most inviting space. And yet when I went back, it felt kind of like going back home, you know? There's something about walking through the hallways of a familiar, old, familiar place that just feels, it brings up the nostalgia in you. Like, have you ever gone back to your old high school or elementary after you've been away to college before? Or, or maybe driven through a neighborhood that you used to live in and you pass by, oh yeah, that's the house I live in. Oh, I played in that park. You know, it, it has a sense of coming home. But the experience wasn't totally positive because there were a lot of people missing. People that I, I cared for, that I invested in as a youth pastor. Some of them had moved away, but others had moved on from their faith in God, had disconnected from the church. That was hard. I mean, these are kids that I poured my life into. These are kids that I spent time with doing Bible studies in small groups. We ran vacation Bible schools together. We, I went to their, their, their football games and cheered them on. I went to their graduations. We, we traveled on mission trips together. And yet they, st- they now don't really even have a meaningful relationship with God. And it's heartbreaking. But my experience is not unique. I mean, this is the story that's been repeated all across North America. There's a study that Barna did, a landmark study that Barna did on youth and young adults. It was published in 2011, and it's, it was entitled You Lost Me. And Barna discovered that 59%, 59% of young adults with a Christian background had dropped out of church involvement. It's more than half, 59%. And it's only gotten worse. When they followed that up in 2019, they discovered that two-thirds, almost two-thirds, 64% of young adults who had regularly attended church had dropped out. So if you grew up in a Christian family, if you grew up attending church, chances are you know people who've fallen, fallen away, who used to be really dedicated, really involved, was passionate about their faith in Christ, yet no longer go to church, no longer have a meaningful relationship with Christ. This is the story that's been repeated across our churches and our communities in the United States. And maybe tonight, some of you are right there on the line. Maybe you're considering leaving the church. You're considering walking away from a relationship with Christ. And if that's you tonight, I plead with you, stay. Please stay. Not because the church is perfect, because it's not. Not because it's absolutely pure, because it's not. Not because the church doesn't make mistakes. We've made a lot of mistakes. But because still, the church is the main way that Christ grows resilient faith in his people. I love how Ellen White describes this. She says, the church, enfeebled and defective, those words, enfeebled and defective, needing to be reproved, warned, and counseled, 
is the only object upon earth upon which Christ bestows his supreme regard. The world is a workshop in which, through the cooperation of human and divine agencies, Jesus is making experiments by his grace and divine mercy upon human hearts. So how do we grow a faith that is resilient? How does the church grow a faith that is resilient? How do we, so that when, when the storms of life come, when the bombs hit, when we are riddled with doubt, that our faith can re- regrow. How does it do that? That's what we're going to discover throughout this series. But tonight, I want to share one practice, one practice that Jesus shared with his first followers on how to grow a resilient faith. And that's found in Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, launch them and follow along with me. This is Luke chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 25 and go through 27. Luke 14, 25. I'm reading from the New New Living Translation. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, Jesus comes off really harsh in this passage. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. I mean, I thought Christians weren't supposed to hate anyone. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, a little bit of context will help. So Jesus is near the end of his ministry here on earth in this passage. He's actually on his way down to Jerusalem where he'll be crucified and killed. And so he's, he's traveling down there, and there's a huge crowd following him because Jesus is a very popular speaker. He's, he's, you know, he's healed a lot of people. So there's a lot of people who have come to see the miracles and to, to hear his sermons, right? They have, he has a huge crowd following him. And in in the book of Luke, he always makes a contrast between the crowd and the committed. See, the crowd were the spectators. The committed were the participants. The crowd were the followers. The committed were the disciples. The crowd had come for the show, but the committed had come for the Savior. So he makes a contrast between the crowd and the committed. And Jesus here turns back to the crowd, and he's trying to move them from the crowd to the committed. And he's doing that by focusing on their identity. And this is so so crucial, because in first century Palestine, your identity usually depended mostly on your family background. I know that's hard for us to to really grasp in our very individualistic um, culture, but back then, your identity, who you, who you knew, defined who you were, right? Your social relationships, your social connections defined your identity. Your family defined your identity. And that's very different than how things work now because nowadays, a big part of identity comes from what we do, right? Our jobs, our work, our schooling, where we go to school, all of those things are a huge part of our identity. That's why when we meet someone for the very first time, I just did it tonight, 
What's the first question that we ask them? What do you do, right? What do you do? But that would not have been the first question you were asked if you were in first century Palestine. The first question they would have asked you is, who's your father? Who's your family? Who's your mother, right? Because your family defines your identity. That's why Jesus' disciples, often when they're introduced in the Gospels, they're introduced alongside their father's names, right? Like James and John were the son of Zebedee, right? So they're, they're adults, they're grown men who have their own jobs, and yet still it's their father's identity that defines their own. Even Jesus. Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and, and what do his neighbors say? Isn't this the son of of the carpenter, right? I mean, Jesus was a carpenter in his own right. He was a rabbi and a teacher, and yet they still knew him as the son of Joseph, the son of the carpenter, because your identity was defined by who you knew. Who you are was defined by who you knew. So as surprising as this is for us, it would have been absolutely shocking What Jesus said would have been shocking to his first century hearers because Jesus is telling them, in order to follow me, in order to be my disciple, you need a new identity. That's why why James says, that's why he takes James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee, and he says, no, no, now your identity, you'll be fishers of men. He He takes Simon, who was the son of Jonah, and he says, no, 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 now your name is Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. See, Jesus wants to revamp their identity. And this is so crucial because often our identity, who we are, determines what we do. Have you ever read the book um, Atomic Habits by James Clear? Any any of you read that book? It's It's an amazing book. If you ever get an opportunity, I highly recommend it. It's a fairly easy read, actually. Um, and it's all about forming small habits that lead to great change. But, um, but in it, he describes this process of what it takes to form habits. And he says, one of the most crucial qualities to forming good habits is a shift in identity. And he describes it this way. Behavior that is incongruent with the self will not last. You may want more money, but if your identity is someone who consumes rather than creates, anybody in that camp? Yeah, then you'll continue to be pulled towards spending rather than earning. You may want better health, but if you continue to prioritize comfort over accomplishment, you'll be drawn to relaxing rather than training. It's hard to change your habits if you never change the underlying beliefs that led to your past behavior. You have a new goal and a new plan, but you haven't changed who you are. And then he goes and he proceeds to talk to tell a story about a guy named Brian Clark, who was an entrepreneur in, in, um, in Boulder, Colorado. And he describes how Brian Clark struggled with chewing his nails. Anybody have that habit of chewing their nails? Maybe you don't want to show your hands if you do. <laughs> so he chewed his nails. He started as a nervous habit of chewing his nails. And then he, it just kind of grew into his adulthood, never stopped. And finally, he decided, I, I'm an adult. I need to stop chewing my nails. So he had his wife make an appointment at a manicurist to get a manicure because he thought, well, if I have to pay money to get, make my nails look good, then I'm less likely to ruin them by chewing them. And it worked, but not for the reason why he thought. 
See, after he got his manicure, he looked at his nails, and they looked amazing. I've never gotten a manicure myself, so I can't, I can't describe that feeling, but he said that it, they looked amazing, and he, he never thought he would be someone who was proud at the way that his nails looked, but he was proud at the way his nails looked. And his manicurist even complimented him and said, oh, you have really good nail. I don't know if they're paid to do, say that or they just want a larger tip or what. But they complimented him and he took it to heart. And from that moment on, when he, he started to see himself as someone who had good looking nails, he never struggled with chewing his nails again. Never even, never even got close to chewing his nails again, according to what he said. And this is how James Clear describes that, that um, that process. He says, the more pride you have in a particular aspect of your identity, the more motivated you will be to maintain the habits associated with it. If you're proud of the way your hair looks, you'll develop all sorts of habits associated with it. If you're proud of the size of your biceps, you'll make sure to never skip an upper body workout. If you're proud of the scarves you knit, you'll be more likely to spend hours knitting each week. Once your pride gets involved, you'll fight tooth and nail to maintain your habits. True behavior change is identity change. So to grow resilient faith, to, that, a faith that fights tooth and nail to, to remain connected to Jesus, no matter what comes our way, we have to start with a shift in identity. To start by making Christ the center of who we are more than our identity as a good student, more than our identity as a successful surgeon, more than our identity as a good, good child or a good parent, to make Christ the center of our identity. But that doesn't just happen. We don't just say, okay, I'm going to be, have Christ as the center of my identity, and that change happens. That's why Jesus um, says at the end of this passage, and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, context counts. Context counts. Who you're following, what you're doing, the experiences you have, all feed into the identity that you create for yourself. Context counts. So later on in this book, James Clear makes that similar point. He says, those people who have the most discipline are, not, are the ones who use it the least. I want you to, that's to settle in for a second. The people who have the most discipline, or who are the most disciplined, are those who use it the least. For example, if you want to stop snacking on candy, what should you do? Should you buy a big bowl of candy, set it right in the middle of your kitchen, so that every time you pass it by, you have to like fight with your willpower and, and strengthen it like a muscle? Or should you just avoid buying candy in the first place? Who's going to be more successful? He says, like, if you have to fight every day, every moment not to eat candy, eventually you're going to succumb. You are. See, context counts. Our environment matters. But the good news is we are not slaves of our environment. We actually have a hand in recreating our context and recreating our environment. And that's why church is so crucial because church creates a context for us to have intimacy with Christ. 
See, church creates that opportunity for that connection. It surrounds us with people who have the same priorities. It gives us experiences that grow Christ as the center of our lives. That's why church matters, because context counts. So the church isn't perfect. It's broken, makes mistakes. It's sometimes very backwards and slow to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But like Ellen White said, it's still the main way that Christ creates this identity of Christ-centeredness in our lives. It's the main way that we engage in intimacy with Christ. Anybody here familiar with the movie Castaway? It was released in 2000, which was 22 years ago, so some of you may not even have been born <laughs> and some people in this room just suddenly felt really old. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a movie, if you haven't seen it, it's a movie starring Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks in this movie plays a FedEx worker whose plane crashes and he's stranded by himself on a deserted island. And the only way he survives is that he, he is through his ingenuity and all the packages that float ashore from this, this plane, and then he uses them to survive, and he even creates a, a volleyball that he talks to called Wilson, right? Well, uh, about a year after that movie was released, it was a huge movie at the time, uh, FedEx made a spoof on that movie as a Super Bowl commercial. And I want, I want to show a clip from it to you tonight and then wrap up with a point. Isn't that awesome? Very creative. But my point is, the church is like that package. It is filled with resources that you can use to create a context where Christ is the center of your life. But it only works if you open the package. So open the package. Get involved in life groups. Attend Afterglow. Make this your community. Surround yourself with people who also have Christ as the center of their lives. Because context counts. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much. We want to thank you so much for being a God who cares so deeply about us that you try to create a world, a context for us where we can connect deeply with you. And so tonight, we ask that you help us to take those first steps of changing our environment, of adapting our context, of surrounding ourselves with people who also are committed with you so that we can have you as the center of our lives and grow a resilient faith. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.
Amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.